throw my computer at you. Let's read my email off of it. Edward, why don't you do this for us as well? Give us a brief, maybe synopsis in your best ability. Uh, Edward went down to Asbury. Many of you before church were asking, what's going on? Just give us your synopsis okay. of what you heard there. Yes, I did visit there yesterday because I was interested to see what was going on. I've mentioned often enough that I believe revival is coming. Uh, I believe it's coming to this church. But, of course, we aren't the only church where it might happen. So I wanted to see what was going on there, and not much. Uh, it was very low-key, which I saw as a very positive sign. There weren't any histrionics. There weren't any rock bands. Um, there were well over a 1,000 people there at noon uh, in a big hall, and they were just quietly worshipping, uh, singing. Uh, there was a guy on the stage playing a guitar. Uh, I didn't recognize any of their worship songs. They were the more modern variety, but they were very low-key, and it sounded nice. Uh, nobody was really talking to anybody. People were just focused on the Lord, and... Um, I spent about an hour there uh, and left feeling that um, something's going on there, but I'm not quite sure what. And uh, I might go back for a second visit in the evening to see if I can nail it down a, a bit more. Asbury uh, is notable for the fact that they, there have been several revivals there uh, in the past. Uh, 1905 and 1970. In fact, in 1970, a revival began there that spread through the whole nation, so for what it's worth. The other thing before I get into message, uh, I've been here nine years. Uh, I think once or twice I, in that time I may have mentioned that I write books. I don't think it's appropriate to try and peddle my books from this platform. However, since we're talking about... Uh, Joshua, Leadership Lessons from Joshua, I first preached a series seven years ago and then produced this little booklet. Uh, and as I was driving to church tonight, I remembered there was a copy in the library, so I went and dug it out. Uh, so you can go and borrow it from the library if you want your own copy. They're available on Amazon at under $8, I think. It's the last time I checked. So you might find it's basically what we're talking about in the messages is in this book. Um, tonight's message is about vision. Joshua had vision. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. It's speaking here of prophetic vision. This is God's perspective, and it's given to his people through men who speak his word in the Old Testament. Um, without that vision, that prophetic vision, God's people wither and die spiritually. That is the theme of tonight's message, and so let's open in prayer, and we'll dive right into it. Father, thank you so much for your amazing word. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your book, your church, your people. Thank you that we can gather here tonight to feast once again on your word. Please bless everything I say. Bless us as we listen, and may Jesus Christ be glorified, for it's in his precious name we ask it. Amen. In the first message of this series, we noted that Joshua understood the war that he was fighting uh, to subdue the promised land wasn't his war, it was God's war. Uh, 
he understood that we're not called to be heroes even in our day as we fight our spiritual battles. God does not expect any of us to be heroes, just obedient servants. Um, Joshua's greatest achievement was the conquest of his own ambitions, his own doubts and fears, as he served and obeyed the Lord all the days of his life. A notable achievement. He was an able and effective leader because he had a clear understanding of who he was and who God was in relation to him. Um, we may say that he had a well-developed worldview, and we're going to talk considerably about worldview this evening. Uh, he had vision. He had that prophetic vision. He understood what he was about and why. He teaches us that somebody who knows who he is and his purpose, where he is headed and why and how to get there, will achieve a lot more in life than someone is, who is confused and doesn't know what he believes, if anything. And I dare say that describes most people in America today. Joshua's worldview was built up over many years in the company of a great man of God and through many experiences of God's superintending presence and power. He was born in Egypt as a slave. He had seen God's judgment on that nation. He felt the, the terror of the approaching death angel, and uh, he enjoyed the blessing, the blessed relief of being saved by the blood of a lamb on the doorpost of his house, and then the triumphant march out of Egypt and the miraculous exit through the Red Sea. He proved himself faithful during God's wilderness wanderings marked by the incessant complaining and rebellion of God's people. He was one of the few, the very few, who didn't complain, didn't lose his focus on God. When Amalek attacked, Joshua was ready to lead. And we meet him there for the first time. And then again when God instructs Moses to take Joshua uh, and teach him the significance of the victory and the power of prayer. So let's begin by looking at Exodus 17, verses 8 to 15. Then came Amalek, verse 8, and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. That rod of God was symbolic of God's power. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur, uh, two of the priests, went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand. By the way, note Joshua's instant obedience. Uh, this was the first time that Joshua was called on to do, do anything by way of actual warfare. And Moses says, go and fight Amalek. And he did as he was told. No arguments, he just went and did it. And it came to pass, verse 11, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So he's holding up the rod of God, symbolic of the power of God. But the battle prevails for a long time. He gets tired and his hands begin to sink. And Aaron and Hur, uh, in verse 12, Moses' hands were heavy. They took a stone, put it under him, and he sat there on. And Aaron and Hur stayed up or held up his hands, one on the one side, the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. A fantastic picture. 
simple, powerful picture of what it means to be in the body of Christ. As we assist each other, we stand with each other, we hold each other up as we fight our way through the spiritual battles that encompass us in this present evil world. Verse 13, And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, this is the significant part in terms of this, tonight's message, the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. What God is declaring here, it's not just about Amalek, that was a tribe. What he's saying is, my war against the flesh will never stop until it's totally eradicated. That part in human nature that is in rebellion against me will be eliminated one day, completely. Verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, which means God is our banner. So, uh, Joshua then goes up the mount of God with Moses and then witnessed the judgments of God on Israel's backslidings. He surveyed the promised land and out of 12 spies was one of only two who were optimistic about conquering it. He then wandered with Israel through 40 dreary years in the wilderness and he never lost his focus, never lost his faith. Through it all, he developed two great personal values that would enable him to rise above any obstacle. Faith in God and personal humility. Those two pillars will take you a long, long way in this life. Faith in God and personal humility. Just knowing who you are in relation to God. It is significant that when Joshua was introduced as the new leader of Israel, the man who would command them in the triumphant conquest of the promised land, he wasn't introduced as the great general who had defeated Amalek or uh, the brave spy who wasn't afraid of the giants. He was simply identified as a servant. Look at that in Exodus 33. Sorry, this is in Joshua Chapter 1. I've got so many references here. Joshua chapter 1, the first two verses. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant. That's what the name, the word minister means. Moses' minister. Could have said quite easily, spake unto Joshua, the great general who defeated Amalek. Spake unto Joshua, an example for all of us. He wasn't scared of the giants. But it doesn't say that. It just says he was a servant. Verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Later when Joshua challenged what he thought was a man standing in his way, it was evident that he also saw himself as a servant of the Lord. Joshua 5, 13 to 15. And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, approaching Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said to him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? In modern parlance, Whose side are you on? And he said, the man said, 
Neither. That's what the nay there means. Neither. I'm not on anybody's side. But as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord to his servant? The implication is very clear. Joshua wanted to know whose side this man was on, and his answer was, Whose side are you on, Joshua? That question applies to us to this day. Whose side are you on today? The key to his spiritual character was seen when Moses erected the tabernacle and then hurried off to other duties. This is another very significant thing from Joshua's life. Look at Exodus 33. Verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. Hallelujah. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. What a statement. Uh, let's go back to verse 7. Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp afar off from the camp and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. He had spent a long time building this tabernacle. Now at last it's erected. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation which was without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people stood up, stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar, Cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. I wish I could have been there then. And it came to pass, the Lord talked with Moses. And verse 10, all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he, Moses, turned again to the camp. He had a lot of work to do back there. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. He stayed in the presence of God. Perhaps if Moses had stayed longer, he would have been less stressed by his leadership of an unruly, rebellious people, a bunch of former slaves, when he lost his temper and struck the rock a second time, it may have been because he was angry at God at the heavy burden that he carried. But the thing about serving God, it was true then and it's true now. He always values worship above work. You'll never impress God by how hard you work for him. He wants your worship long before he wants your work. The foundation of true worship is submission. During Joshua's 40 years of wilderness wanderings with the Israelites, he developed a simple but powerful view of God as a great and mighty king worthy of total submission. He lost his will in the will of God and became an instrument of God. He was effective because he wanted nothing for himself. A man who wields great power but has no personal ambition and seeks no glory for himself is a contradiction in the world. 
Such a man is marked for greatness in this world and the next. I made that point in the last message. So let's begin then by looking at what is a worldview and why should we care? Joshua was motivated by the way he viewed the world. Whether conscious or not, we have some type of worldview, each of us, that is a combination of all we believe to be true. What we believe becomes the driving vo force behind every emotion, decision, and action affecting our responses to every area of life. It is a lens through which we view reality, like a tree root. It is hidden but vital to our spiritual well-being. And a personal worldview answers some key questions. Where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Now, this last question haunts the thoughts of most people. Those who reject God and clutter up their lives with stuff that is uh, very important to them all fear the uncertainty of death and do their best to avoid thinking about it uh, and some of them, their best to actually avoid it by transplants of various vital organs, by going on health kicks, by whatever they can do to hang on to life because that's all they've got. Uh, Thomas Hobbes was a leading philosopher in 17th century England, and he defended materialism. He believed you can only believe what you can see and touch. And since you cannot see God and you can't touch God, God doesn't exist. I'm a practical man. I'm going to deal with the world as it is, the world in front of me, said Thomas Hobbes. But the crushing last-minute uncertainty of such a belief was underlined by his last words spoken on his deathbed. I'm about to take a fearful leap into the dark. Do you realize that that is what haunts everybody who dies without Christ? doesn't matter how mighty they are, how high they are, how wealthy they are, how great they have been in this life. There is a moment in every life on earth when the next step you take is going to be into the eternal unknown. And people without Christ are terrified of that. And often their response to Christians is because they're terrified of that and they resent us for the fact that we're not terrified of dying. The rejection of God and of God's rule permits any behavior by God denies that can be dreamed up by a corrupt human mind, but at its end there is only fear, uncertainty, and regret. By contrast, a worldview centered in God brings peace and joy in this life and the next. Listen, if you're a Christian, especially a Christian in this gathering, if you're a Christian and peace and joy is not your bread and butter, something's wrong. Your life centered in Christ means you have the answer to everything. And you have within you that eternal life that will carry you through everything. Whether you like it or not, my dear brothers and sisters, you are on your way to heaven. And you will get there. Even if you've changed your mind and you don't want to go anymore, that's where you're going to end up. How could we possibly be glum and defeatist with that knowledge. So 
Why is a worldview important? I think I've just told you. It's not enough to act like Christians. We've got to think like Christians. We do that when we don't see our life as a series of unrelated actions and behaviors, but as part of a seamless whole. If a Christian worldview is part of us, we will always know what action is right or when an idea or philosophy or opinion is wrong, even though we don't know why. It's just you have a certain uh, sense of right and wrong, which you may not even be able to articulate, but it's very real because of your focus on Christ. To put it another way, the things that we should not be motivated the things we do should not be motivated and defined by the rules we keep, but by who we are. Let me say that again. The things we do should never be motivated and defined by the rules we keep, but by who we are. Fish swim, birds fly, sinners sin, and Christians live victoriously through their Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who we are. So let's look at a biblical worldview. We've looked at a personal worldview, a biblical worldview. By the way, this all flows out of Joshua, who had this worldview. That's what made him such an amazing servant of God. Although the Bible never uses the word, the word worldview, it's very clearly expressed in Colossians 2, verses 6 to 8, where we're told to, establish, to be established in our faith while discerning and discarding false philosophy, those are the two extremes. Faith in God and false philosophy, conflicting worldviews. In Colossians, we read this. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. By the way, how did you receive him? By faith. How do you walk in him? By faith. Rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein. That means overflowing with thanks, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, and after the rudiments or elementary teachings of the world, and not after Christ. There you have a definition of a Christian worldview. A biblical worldview contains the following essential elements. God, I am, Yahweh, is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe. The Bible is the infallible word of God. Absolute truth is defined by the Bible. These are all pillars of your Christian worldview. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, died an atoning death, rose from the dead, and is alive today. In fact, he's right here in our midst. Salvation through faith in Christ is a gift from God that cannot be earned. My purpose and yours is to worship him and reflect his light forever. And lastly, Christians must share the life of Christ with others. Here's the shocking Reality. Uh, the most recent survey, 2022, indicates that a very small minority, 6% of those who identify themselves not just as Christians but as born again Christians, 6% hold, 
hold to that worldview. That is shocking, discouraging. How did that happen? Now, a lot of them believe some of these points. Some of them might believe most of those points. But only 6% believe them all. And each one of these is vital to your spiritual health as a Christian. And by the way, that number grows smaller each year. It's troubling on many levels, not least because a biblical worldview has motivated Christians since the earliest days to oppose the world's greatest evils, including slavery, the abuse of women and children, poverty, and in the past hundred years, the satanic counterfeit religion of Marxism in its many forms. I don't know if you're aware that today in America, the ruling elite, every single last one of them is a Marxist. A Marxist worldview is the impetus of our new ruling class, and it's captured most of the Western world as well. Now, if you're not sure what Marxism is and would like a thorough yet simple explanation, contact me after the service. I'd be happy to send you a summary of the topic. Uh, it's important Christians should know what is going on uh, in the minds of those who oppose us. Not so that we can fight them, but so that we can better pray for them and love them and share Jesus Christ with them. Christian worldview advocates point to the rise of abortion, euthanasia, and embryonic stem cell research as resulting from a lack of understanding of what it means to be human. When you toss God away, you don't know what a human is. He's just a machine, an accidental face, a... Um, in fact, I've got a quote here somewhere. Uh, that's, I'll get to it in a moment. That's very accurate. The latest iteration of thinking that reflects a worldview void of moral absolutes and any sense of humanity is the idea that our identity as men and women is as unstable as water. If you ever want proof that we've lost it, it's right there. At last count, there were 57 genders, I think. It might be a lot more since I last counted. A thumbnail comparison summary of major worldviews indicates how they may shape our lives. Christianity. If you're a Christian, then you know that Christianity teaches that God is real and present. He's right here, waiting to be discovered by those who don't know him. But his kingdom is not of this world. Roman Catholicism and Islam share the fact that God is distant, and his kingdom, or Allah's kingdom, is of this world. That's why they fight. That's why the Muslims are so uh, determined to conquer the world, because they've got to establish Allah's kingdom on earth by the sword. Eastern religions and philosophies, and I do them a great disservice with the summary, many of them are quite complex. The, e the easiest definition I could think of was God is the universe and the universe is God. And I apologize to if anybody ever sees that who's a Buddhist or a Shintoist or a Hindu. Uh, I'm not doing them justice, but that's roughly what they believe. And then the new religion, Marxism, man's kingdom is of this world and it's up to us to build it. Do you see the difference? 
Christianity, God's kingdom is not of this world. False religions, God's kingdom is of this world. Marxism, man has a kingdom that he's building in this world. Marxists believe that they're going to restore the world to an Edenic state. And first we've got to cure the problem of global warming and uh, lack of diversity or too much diversity or racism or whatever the flavor of the day is. Uh, and then we have postmodernism, post which teaches that we live in an accidental universe and there, there's no absolute certainty about anything. And postmodernism and Marxism are kissing cousins. They share many of the same views. What is your worldview? Whether or not you have, whether you know it or not, you have a worldview. Hopefully it's a biblical worldview based on the infallible word of God. When you believe the Bible is entirely true, you will allow it to be the foundation of everything you say and do. More important than agreement, however, is whether or not you live it. Is the Bible your guiding light in everything you think and say and do? And if it's not, how does your worldview get diluted? Because this book is absolute truth, and you'd think we'd, we'd hang on to it for all we can, because yes, truth, yes, my anchor, this is my, my uh, certainty in an uncertain world, and yet we let go of this so easily sometimes. One of the reasons is non-biblical worldviews bombard us day and night, from television, film, music, newspapers, magazines, books, academia, our from the highest universities in the land to the smallest school system in the land, they are rotten to the core. They've been hollowed out by Marxists to the point that it's almost child abuse to send your child to a public school. If your child is in a public school, check daily what they're being taught. Our entire culture, indeed the entire world culture, is immersed in anti-God thinking. These ideas appeal to the desires of our flesh, and we often end up incorporating them into our personal worldview without realizing it. The secularized American view of history, law, politics, science, God, and man affects our thinking to the point that we are taken captive by philosophy and vain deceit more than we realize. Now we can counter this by diligently learning, applying, and trusting God's truths in every area of our lives, whether it's watching a movie, communicating with our spouses, raising our children, shopping, or out in the world at work. Like Joshua, we can resolve that whatever anyone else does, we will serve the Lord and stand against the unrelenting tide of our culture's non-biblical ideas. And that doesn't mean that you become obnoxious. It does mean, however, that you are willing and able to say no. Very politely, no, that's wrong. I disagree with that. I'm sorry, I'm not buying that. We can do it without being obnoxious, but we must do it. 
if it is our decisions and actions that reveal what we really believe, and it is our lived testimony that will impact the world around us. God expects us to live by the exhortation of Romans chapter 12. It's right there in Scripture. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. When we do this, we'll develop an awareness of God that matches Joshua's and is perfectly expressed in Psalm 96. We're going to end there. Turn with me to Psalm 96. It's an amazing psalm that fits right in with this message. Psalm 96. O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear him, fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. For he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Oh, it's good to be a Christian. May our light shine brighter in this day than ever before. May we be invested in this book and in the worldview of a born-again, Jesus-honoring Christian every day of our lives. Help us, Father, to do just that. We ask in Jesus' precious name.